Welcome to CSU Stories, the podcast where we tell the stories of the unique work of people in regional New South Wales and beyond. From Hollywood careers to amphibian specialists, we talk with CSU staff, students, alumni and members of our communities to share how our regions are shaping Australia and the world. I'm talking with Dr Piero Moraro today, a lecturer at our Centre for Law and Justice. Piero has studied in the UK and in Italy, joining Charles Sturt University initially as a lecturer in philosophy and then moving to join justice studies. Piero holds a PhD in philosophy from the University of Stirling and an MSc in philosophy and public policy from the London School of Economics. Very impressive. Piero, welcome to Charles Sturt Stories today. Thanks, Jess. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's wonderful to have you. So, Piero, you have such an interesting background to me because you are lecturing in criminology, you have qualifications in philosophy and the philosophy of law in particular, and I've really been looking forward to talking to you about activism in Australia at the moment and the current climate of things like Extinction Rebellion and the protests around, you know, farming with the vegan protests and how the government is responding legally. So we've seen activists start to mobilise in in relation to these topics, and particularly with Extinction Rebellion. And then both sides of politics, both Labor and the Liberals, appear to be condemning those protests. And Queensland is looking at the anti-protest laws they want to pass. So, I mean, what's your view of all this? What's the impact that these laws will have for our, I guess, what we consider our right to protest? So these are really interesting times to be in Australia and to be working on these kind of things because it's you know it's it's happening in front of us it's unfolding in front of our eyes and uh, a lot of things that as theorists as philosophers have been running about now are um, are happening you know having to do with especially with the power relationships between the state uh, the government and um, and the protesters i think what we are seeing right now is that the 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 scale of these protests is growing. Their impact is hard to be ignored because the protesters have found ways that you know cause disruption, and you know you can't ignore when you know you're stuck in traffic. You can't ignore when uh, someone has you know coming to your farm and filming what you're doing in your farm to the animals. So the government, you know, we we have a romantic view of what the government does, and then we have a more realistic view of what the government does. And the romantic view is that the government is there to protect the common good, to protect us, to treat us as equals. Uh, you know, the land of, of the fair go, of course, we've heard that a lot. But the more realistic, I think, and in um, philosophy, in um, academic circles, we call it the critical view, is that the government is not really there to protect the interest of citizens is there to protect certain specific interests of certain groups. You know, call them the mining industry, call them the farming industry, call them the lobbies they work with. And so I think what's happening right now is that the government is very worried by the impact these protests are having on those whose interests the government is mainly focused on. And uh, these new legislations, this constant narrative about terrorism and extremists and uh, um, you know, the stupid people, depending the word. I think Pauline Hanson said the vermins, you know, the horrible ways to talk about people who are engaging in civil disobedience reveals that there is a concern that these protests cannot be ignored and, and the government now is stuck, you know, either listens to the protesters mm. and therefore might go against the interests of other people or chooses a different narrative whereby these protesters are not worth of our attention 
and uh, we should Russia, you know, rather find a way to stop them. Mm. And it's so interesting because the language around these protesters who have been peaceful, peaceful yet disruptive, which one would argue, I guess, the point of a protest is to get attention and raise awareness, so maybe disruption is probably part of that. But the language around it, calling people vermin and that sort of things, it's really strong language. I mean, do we think that over the past, I don't know, 20, 30 years, that protests have suddenly become seen as a bit of a, an annoyance rather than something that probably used to be seen as an important part of our democratic expression? Look, th- they are meant to be an annoyance, meaning a disruption. You know, whenever I, I, you know, I, I uh, command protesters, people say, well, what if you are you know, going to the hospital and then the highway is stuck? What if your wife is giving birth, your kids are sick? And, and you know, of course, these, these you know, good arguments. But, you know, if we, if we reason along those lines that we should just stay home and never go out and never do anything, never go to a concert, you know, if my car breaks down, you know, my block the highway, you know, so it's a slippery slope, as you said, and it doesn't really work in um, making a point for, uh, for protest. I think we have seen this kind of a, approach to protesters before. One reason why people are so concerned by what's happening in Queensland right now, at least, you know, some people, and I'm, I'm one of those, is that it reminds us of darker times in the history of Queensland, you know, with um, John Bjarke Peterson, where mm. the government made it a priority to to stop civil disobedience. The, you know, the police were actually encouraged to be heavy-handed on protesters, and uh, and this idea that protesters were some kind of disease to be eradicated from our society. You know, in the 60s and 70s, of course, with the war in Vietnam. The civil rights movement, that's where academic interest in civil disobedience started to pick up because it was happening and the government was being pretty heavy-handed in, in dealing with protesters. So I think Australia has had a very good time up until now. And now, of course, climate change being the main issue, but also economic insecurities, uh, you know, wages are not growing, inequalities are growing on the other hand. We look at prisons and we see that the majority of people who are in prison are Aboriginal are people of poor social disadvantage. We see the rich guys, on the other hand, you know, getting a bonus when they when they commit fraud or stuff like that. And so I think you know there is the the the, the social protest movement is growing. Mm. And again, the government's responses are getting tougher. And we the point is, you know, where will this take us in the end? Well, that's what's so interesting to me because you know, even just over the past, I guess maybe twenty years when we went into, you know, the Iraqi war, like I think this was back around 2000 under John Howard, there were lots of protests around our participation in, in that war. And correct me if I'm wrong, I don't recall, but I don't remember there being all this talk of, of outlawing protest, you know. And I remember even with Manus and the different things happening with refugees, there were big protests in Melbourne. And at the time there wasn't this currency with the government to say, we're actually going to outlaw that. But now with climate change and Extinction Rebellion, to see the Labor government in Queensland, which probably argued against, you know, Campbell Newman's bikey laws and, and those restrictions on, on gatherings and expression as well, and now condemning this and saying we're going to pass anti-protest laws. Where does that leave us? I know we don't have a Bill of Rights like the United States does, so from a legal point of view we don't have a right to freedom of speech or, or that sort of thing, but where do we go from here if the government gets anti-protest laws through? What? What does that look like for us as Australians? Yeah, so Australia is bound by international law anyway. So, for example, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights states right to freedom of speech, of course, freedom of assembly. 
and freedom of movement. So there is no specific mention of the right to protest, but the right to protest can be carried out only if people are allowed to form an assembly, for example. You mentioned the case of asylum seekers before, and it's mm. worth remembering that the government actually tried to introduce and did introduce a bill to prevent doctors from talking about what was happening on Manus Island. They did, I remember that. So, that was such an assault, I yeah, thought, on freedom. Yeah, mm. yeah. On the other hand, though, those campaigns worked in the end. You know, very very quietly, the government eventually removed all the, ch- all the children from offshore detention centre, or so at least we are told, that at least played with rules to make it look like they're not being detained anymore. Mm. Uh, so there was some kind of responsiveness. But now it's very different. And I think it's because now they're not asking for let's treat people more humane, but now let's talk, they're talking about let's change the way we do business. Mm. You know, let's change where the money comes from. Let's change, you know, let's invest in renewable energy. Let's treat animals in, in a different way than we used to do. And this, of course, requires some changes, requires powerful agents to give in some of their power. And trust me, you know, I got, I, I come, I've come to discover that it's a very big deal just in principle for, you know, a CEO of a group or a corporation to just accept that they have to yield and to the demands of other people. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why the government now, even more than before, is arguing that this is a threat to our society and the protesters are a threat to our society. And all these new laws are there to protect us. But when you look at the laws, Mm. you really have to ask yourself, well, having read this law, this new legislation, for example, the right to farm bill or the the Agricultural Protection Bill that was introduced earlier this year to stop vegan protesters from spreading information about what's happening in some abattoirs. Mm. These laws were proposed as protecting the safety of the farmers. But when you read the laws, there's not mention of the farmers there. The mention is about the business. So people uh, protesting against fracking, for example, students protesting in a university, you know, if they if they occupy a building, you know, in Sydney to protest against whatever, you know, or what's happening at Murdoch University right now in Western Australia. That's an enclosed land. And um, and these laws can be used to target that. And we've seen these a lot in the UK in the post 9-11 um, times. And now we've seen the same trick here. You know, it's proposed as something for the common good. Again, the romantic idea of what the government does. But when you r- read the details, there's nothing about the common good. It's about protecting the industry, not even the farmers, who, of course, their well-being is very important. It's protecting those who profit from that kind of industry. And this makes us question the, val- the, the value of these laws. Well, I suppose because then it broadens the scope, even though it's called right to farm, then it could apply to a whole range of agricultural businesses or industries that maybe wasn't in the initial spirit of what we thought the laws were for. Do you think the government relies on on people subscribing to that romantic ideal that, oh, well, they're doing this for the right reasons and it will be a good thing and I don't really need to know the details. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, it's, again, I think it's very polarised. Mm. I mean, if you, if you read what's happening right now with, with the bushfires, you know, there were people yesterday arguing that it's, it's the Green Party's fault because the Greenies don't let, you know, let us clear the land. And of course, you know, I think land clearing is the best argument to stop bushfires, you know, but we know that land clearing has extremely controversial aspects to it and should be controlled. Mm. So I think in Australia, like in most parts of the world, the debate is very polarised. Mm. And I think, you know, just ideologically, people don't want to 
to to listen to the other side. You know, mm-hmm. of course, you know, it's very hard for me to sit down and talk to a climate change denialist, for example. You know, just I have to make a massive effort to to accept what these people are saying, or you know, white supremacists. Of course, you want to sit down and you know, good luck in a conversation with them. But I think it works the other way around. You know, if someone has extremely strong ideas about, you know, we we need business, we need to make profit. Our country has been like this all this time. You know, I worked hard, and now you don't want to work hard. It is very hard to 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 bridge the gap, and I think the government is playing with that by saying, "You are the good one because you're not protesting, and they are the bad ones, and we're gonna target them, and to remind you how good you are." It's such an us and them mentality, which has worked throughout the history of time to create a group of people that it's a common enemy and then you band together and, and the people in power are obviously benefiting from that. There's a famous French sociologist, Gustave Le Bon, and he wrote, you know, 100 years ago, that if you want to be a good governor, a good a good leader, don't tell people, uh, I'm going to make your life better, I'm going to give you this. You have to give them an enemy. If you give them an enemy, then they will follow you. So first you say, there's this threat out there and unless you vote for me, you're going to succumb to the threat. And of course, you know, asylum seekers, typical example, you know, one election was won on the Mexicans. Let's build a wall. Uh, same stuff in Italy, where I'm from, you know, close the close the ports, don't let the boats arrive anymore. These are actually, I suppose, they're like guidelines, you know, for being a politician. If you want to win the election, that's a safe way to get support. Just make people scared of anything that doesn't really exist and, um, and make as much noise as possible and they will vote for you. So maybe now the next one will be protesters. So, you know, we're going to protect you from vermins attacking you in your as you're driving to work and what's scary too is that a far bigger threat to our very existence in my opinion is climate change but we're scrabbling around in the shallow end talking about whether we should be allowed to protest around it or not do you think from an activist point of view or a civil disobedience point of view do you think that what's the best approach to take here is it just to continue to protest if these laws go through what will that mean for for activists? Yeah, so these are laws designed specifically to deter people, so to scare them off. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're talking about the right to farm bill, you know, $22,000 fines and up to three years in prison. Okay, for a, pro- for a protest, you know, not for murdering someone, for, a pro- right. for occupying enclosed land. So, of course, you know, if I want to engage in protest, you know, I've got kids, I've got a job, I'm going to think twice about that. And the question here is, well, when the government um, raises the stakes, you know, I think citizens can do that as well. And I think that's the risky part here, you know, mm. that these are forms of civil disobedience, mm. regardless of how the government depicts them. No one gets purposefully hurt. No one gets kidnapped or tortured. You know, just there is a disruption there. But the disruption aims at the government not ignoring the demand. We're not talking about terrorism. Terrorism is very different. You know, mm. again, coming from Europe, I can tell you what terrorism is about. And this country hasn't experienced it yet. And um, the danger is that, you know, this escalation will, the more people worry about climate change, the more, you know, climate change is in our face. And the danger is that by being dismissed through their civil protest, some people might vent their frustration in different ways. You know, normally right-wing people do that. And we've seen this last year in in New Zealand. But, you know, it might happen that some some desperate farmer or someone who's lost their house and um, don't get any support from the government might feel aggrieved to an extreme that would take them to doing Violence. horrible things. So, mm-hmm. you know, rather than rather than, you know, oppressing this protest so much, the government should allow should acknowledge that these protesters are doing something 
good for our society. You know, they're not undermining democracy. They're doing something which is what a, a democratic country is supposed to to allow for. And the laws are not saying you cannot protest. The narrative here, again, from Palaszczuk, from the Queensland government, is mm. that you need you can engage only in peaceful protest. But peaceful protest becomes protest that doesn't disturb anyone. So if I occupy a public space, I cause disruption, that protest is not peaceful anymore. So what's left for citizens to do? You know, What can we do to have an impact? I think that's the thing. It reminds me, and I could be totally wrong about this, but uh, decades ago when in terms of workplace union strikes, it reminds me of the whole narrative around strikes in a way. And then, yes, you can definitely strike, but you have to inform everybody and not disrupt anybody. And I suppose that, I mean... I don't really have a view one way or the other on whether that's worked or not, but it, it feels similar to this conversation. Yes, you can protest, but alert everybody first and make sure that there's absolutely no disruption and, and no concern. Yes. Um, and, and maybe that will work and maybe it won't, but it, it does feel a little bit like these laws are focusing on the wrong things. We are a democracy. Expressing our views and having a multiplicity of views is a good thing. And also... This, what we have in terms of, of the legal system in place now, I mean, we have laws around trespass, we have laws around vilification, we have laws around, you know, violence and things like that. So do, do we even need these new anti-protest laws? Yeah. Look, whenever you limit uh, citizens' civil liberties by introducing new laws, there are two requirements, with well, the four, but two requirements are, have to be fulfilled. One is necessity. So it must be necessary that you prevent people from engaging in a certain protest in order to avert a certain threat. And then whatever you do, it must be proportionate to the harm. So there was an incident in Melbourne uh, two weeks ago, uh, I think it was, when protesters were just standing there and the police used, used capsicum sprays on them. And capsicum sprays have to be used only when there is a threat to life or a direct threat to someone's to someone's safety. Uh, you cannot use them on, um, on, you know, people who are just sitting there preventing people from entering a building. So there was a case in which the powers were used in a way that wasn't warranted. Mm. And all this new legislation, as you mentioned, doesn't appear to be necessary. If I trespass on, public, on private property, there is a penalty. And I know that, you know, these protesters know that they're going to get punished and they're, and they're ready to, um, to face that. It's not like they are going to be deterred by that. So this applies to a variety of uh, of other cases, you know. But the, the the point that is missed when the government introduces new laws and new penalties is that the protesters don't care. You know, the protesters are willing to pay that price mm. if they think the stakes are high. And again, with climate change, the stakes are it's extremely extremely high. Yeah. So um, it looks like necessary necessity there is not being fulfilled. Mm. And even proportionality, again, mm. you know, how, how much harm to community is someone who's sitting in front of a bank with a banner, you know, against the, the corporations? What kind of threat is that person posing? Not too much to justify the parliament having a special sitting to introduce new legislation. So tell me, you've published a book, Civil Disobedience, A Philosophical Overview, and that came out in August this year. Uh, in 2019. So can you talk me through what that's all about and, and your research area and, and your focus area in that book? Yeah. Yeah. So I think this book it kind of um, wasn't written in response to what's happening, of course, right now, because I've been working on that for a few years. Mm-hmm. But I think it offers in some way a response to this narrative of the, the extremists, the terrorists, the vermins, you know, mm-hmm. the some kind of, you know, defective citizens who have to be stopped. And in the book, I show that when we consider the principles that ground democratic societies mm. and principles such as equality, 
such as autonomy, such as respect for us as equals, social protest becomes very important because although we have this idea that democracy with the one person, one vote fixes everything, that's very rarely the case. You know, the legislations always work to the advantage of someone. The, the, you know, the, 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 the rich get richer and the poor get prison, as a famous book uh, says. <laughs> oh, that's close to the bone, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so in the, in the book, I really try to first understand what makes an action civil, you know, the difference between civil and uncivil disobedience. Mm-hmm. So undermine this idea that you are civil as long as you are acting in an orderly way, you know, you offer fair notice of what you're doing, you sit there quietly with your banners, and uh, you really do minimum, minimum, you know, in terms of disruption. And we tend to think that that's the only way to be civil. And in the book, I actually argue for the opposite. There are very much more extreme ways in which you might engage in a form of civility, even if you are causing disruption. In fact, I say it is much more civil for me to state my view very strongly, make sure that you understand what I'm saying, rather than, you know, being in a corner and being quiet and hoping that you will listen to me. It would be disrespectful if I didn't engage with you fully. That's right. And then I consider the issue of the right to civil disobedience, which seems to be paradoxical because if we have a duty to obey the law, how can we have a right to disobey the law? And I show that actually Disobeying a specific law under certain circumstances doesn't mean that you have failed in uh, in your duties. You know, if uh, if I have a duty, for example, to show equal respect for everyone, uh, then when I protest, for example, about the detention of young young um, people in Australia, uh, asylum seekers in detention centers, the way indigenous people are treated in prison very often, even if I'm breaching a law, my action is grounded on a commitment to treating everyone as equals. Mm. So I shouldn't be seen as failing in my duties as citizens. And that takes us to the question, well, how should the law then respond to me, given that I'm doing something which, based on my account, is illegal, but nonetheless kind of fulfills a broader idea of what my duties are. Mm. And in the book, I argue, and I'm not going to go into the details because it gets too extreme, that (laughs) in principle, the state doesn't have the right to punish me, which is kind of, you know, It's not so extreme as it seems. Other uh, academics have defended the view. The state doesn't have a right to publish me simply because I've engaged in civil disobedience. However, there are other considerations to be placed into the story which might justify all things considered that the state gives me some punishment, but not as much punishment as the other one. But interestingly, I say in the book and here I draw on someone else's work that while the state does that, you should apologize. You should say, we regret having to punish you for this, but under the circumstances, we have to mm. because of others, you know, the, what this might lead, you know, in terms of public order in general. But how different is that from what we see right now? Oh, uh, <laughs> how amazing would it be if we saw a government or legal official <laughs> give us an apology for something like that? It's a totally different way of looking at things, isn't it? And I, I wonder, I'm, as I'm listening to you, you know, we have a, we have laws and then we have, I guess, a sense of nationalism and then we have our own personal morality. So it's the interplay of those things. I suppose you prioritise what you think becomes the most important factor in a, making a decision around that. If you think something's morally right and you go with it even if it's illegal, you know, could that be the right decision? Laws aren't always correct, yep. you know, and we've seen, you know, throughout history laws being used to achieve immoral and and terrible things. So the other thing that makes me think of is that in democracy, we as a people, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, 
we give some power to the government on a limited basis to deliver services and things back to us. And I feel like now we're in a stage where it's completely reversed. The government now has so much of this power and then they give some limited power back to us on how we live our lives. Yeah, look, I think you raised like the two most, you know, <laughs> in the, you know very, very uh, complex questions here. The one about the law you mentioned before, you know, some laws are unjust. You know, you mentioned the case of the Nazis and mm. you, you remember, you know, the 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 officials in the and you know at the Nuremberg trial they weren't allowed to say I was just following orders you mm. know it doesn't matter that you're following mm. orders if the law is immoral what you're doing is wrong and I think you know you see that often here we were talking about this you know off you know off the mic before with the asylum seekers when people say well I understand people come by boat they're running away from genocide but they're jumping the queue as if jumping the queue there is no queue to jump to begin with but even if the story was true how is the fact that they jump in the queue to change anything about their story? They're running for their lives. That's and I think right. in Australia, we are, I think maybe the older generation more than the younger ones, and I don't know where the two of us sit in the debate, <laughs> but the, 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 the older generations have this idea that it is the law. And the law says so and so, I am a good citizen because I obey the law. Mm. And if you don't obey the law, there's something wrong with you. Mm. And again, you know, it doesn't happen here, it happens everywhere. But I think that narrative is is dangerous in democratic countries. And again, it worked insofar as things were great in Australia, but now that things are not so great anymore, I think we have to abandon the commitment that you must obey the law. Yes. Whatever the government says, it is the law. If we stop obeying the law, we are vermins. Yes, you have to be able to critically think about the things that happen in government and, and laws that are passed that will affect all of us. I think, which can be hard to do. Sometimes the narrative and, and your your sources of media aren't always providing a balanced, you know, stream of information and sometimes they are. So, oh, thank you so much for your time today, Pierre. I've really enjoyed our discussion and I've learned quite a lot along the way. Um, anything else, any last thoughts around the future of Australian democracy that you want to leave us with? Oh, <laughs> just, just a small, In a nutshell. Just a small question for, to conclude. Uh, look, <laughs> there's reason to worry, for sure, not, not just in Australia. In fact, I think Australia is playing catch-up with the UK, for example. The UK is, you know, is at a whole new level. But I think Australia is catching up very quickly with uh, limiting people's avenues mm. for political agency. Mm. And so it's very important that we don't give up to the narrative uh, that uh, these people deserve to be this deserve for the legislation, mm. and actually understand the, po the the positive contribution that some forms, not all forms, but some forms of illegal protest, and certainly the ones we discussed today, extinction rebellion, the vegan movement, are to be protected rather than to be further uh, penalized and, 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 and criticized. Thank you so much, Piero. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Jessica. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to sharing all of our CSU stories with you. For more information on CSU stories, go to news.csu.edu.au.